Welcome to the second season of the Current Cucurbit podcast series. I'm your host, Mark Gleason. I'm a plant pathologist at Iowa State University. I'm also the leader of a USDA-funded research and outreach project focusing on finding better ways to protect organic cucurbit crops, especially muskmelon and acorn squash, against the triple threats of diseases, pest insects, and weeds. The project includes three states, Iowa, New York, and Kentucky. Okay, well, our guests today on the current cucurbit podcast series uh, are Dr. Rick Besson and Dr. David Gontier from University of Kentucky. And we've been working with Rick and Dave for um, a couple of years now on this OREI project having to do with um, mesotunnels in cucurbit production, specifically muskmelon and uh, winter squash, but other squashes as well. And uh, the, the topic that um, I've asked them to talk about today um, is kind of part of the, or at least it could be a part of the mesotunnel strategy. And that's using uh, purchased bumblebees to, to, uh, to handle the pollination chores uh, inside these mesotunnels. So uh, welcome guys, appreciate your taking the time. Um, what's your, what's your thinking after a couple of years on this? Is this, is this strategy of using purchase bees as it makes sense and why or why not? Uh, you know, the, the, the basic need with these mesotunnels is we have to have insect pollination. You know, we use the tunnels to exclude the, the cucumber beetles and the squash bugs so we, we don't get their, their feeding or, or the pathogens they transmit. But the trade-off is now, now we have to somehow uh, provide the insect pollinators uh, to, to uh, get the job done. I mean, there's separate male and female flowers under there. And so one thing we've looked at for a few years has been, okay, we're going to exclude the pollinators. Why don't we just leave the netting over the plants for the entire season, and we can actually purchase these commercial uh, bumblebee colonies. You know, bumblebee colonies, uh, th there's several companies that sell them. Uh, we can get these small colonies. They pollinate for about eight to 10 weeks. And the idea is, you know, about a month after we put the netting on is when the female flowers begin to open. And that's when we can put commercial bumblebee colonies underneath the, the, uh, the netting, and they can fulfill that requirement for pollination. So we've looked at that. We've compared it to some different strategies. And, you know, uh, and, and, and now we're at the point where we're, we're trying to assess uh, how effective it is, uh, not only in terms of producing fruit, but also, uh, you know, what's the cost benefit ratio? Uh, putting these these commercial uh, colonies uh, under under the netting, and you know what one thing to consider is these commercial uh, bumblebee colonies are not cheap. Um, you know they they can be uh, over a hundred dollars, and then when they're shipped, they they tend to be uh, you know express shipped, and that that uh, shipping charge is usually as much or more than the colony itself. Wow, and, and so it. It, it's not cheap. Wow. Oh, you yeah. just can't put these in an envelope and lick it shut, can you? <laughs> you think these bees could fly themselves down, but it doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah. 
and, and so, you know, we've looked at them for a, a number of years. Um, we, 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 we've done it in comparison to some other strategies, you know, taking the netting off for 10 to 14 days and just let the wild pollinators move in. Uh, and that works well for pollination, but th then, then there's some trade-offs with letting some of the pests back in on the plants as well. Um, and so we, we've had some mixed results with the, the bumblebees under the netting. So uh, you would think by, by supplying bumblebees, uh, you know, theoretically, you think we should get our most consistent results because we're, we're providing the, the bumblebees in there. But that's not always been the case. And so, you know, sometimes when you actually implement the research, you, you see some things that uh, you didn't expect. And, uh, you know, one thing we've seen is uh, less than 100% yields, for example, with, with some of the melon crops in some years here in Kentucky. Uh, we're not exactly sure why. Uh, it, it's really interesting because when you look at some of those plots, they look different at the end of the season when you're harvesting the melons, they look different than the other plots. Generally, when you harvest melons, you know, the, the leaves and the vines start to decline, you know, and, and you can really spot the melons in the plots. These plots where we had the full season bumblebees under the netting, when we take off the netting for harvest, the plants are still very vigorous and lush and they have many more male flowers on them than the others. And we weren't seeing that 100% yield. Uh, I, I'm just going by memory here, but you know, something on the order of maybe 70% of, of, of what you know, some of the other, other plots were yielding. So uh, we don't know why we saw this, but, but that was the case. A little bit different in, in squash. I think the, the yields have been more consistent with squash. Now, now, Dave is much more familiar with um, some of the data from the, from the last couple of years. Yeah, and that seems, I think, what we found. The other big thing that I think uh, we have found when, you, when we're doing a lot of these experimental projects on research farms, a lot of times our plots are actually relatively small compared to what a farmer would do. And this logical idea of putting a honeybee, or sorry, a, a bumblebee colony underneath there, I, I think a lot of the research has looked very promising for a while because uh, you put one colony underneath a 30-foot uh, row plot, and there are tons of bees per, per plant in that scenario. And we've seen, and I think on those smaller plots, the results have consistently shown you get great pollination. But with this current grant, what we've been pushing to do is, is scale up these plots to, to be similar to what a farmer would do or approaching what they would do. And uh, some of the results of putting the, the um, bumblebee colonies have perhaps started to show that one colony might not be enough for a 150 foot long plot. Uh, or we're at least seeing uh, pollinator visitation rate to flowers start to go uh, significantly less than what the wild bees are providing if you open up the nets in some form or another. One last point was a lot, a lot of people ask, why don't we just use honeybees? Uh, 
maybe Rick, you've got your you worked a lot with honeybees all over the world, I think. So I've never tried that, but maybe you have. Um, honeybees are great pollinators for these crops in open situations, but what, what, when when they're under nets, um, you know, in, in greenhouses, in high tunnels, under netting. Uh, honeybees are not good pollinators because they spend their whole time just trying to get out of the containment rather than pollinating flowers. That honeybees actually like to travel a long distance before beginning to uh, pollinate, and so um, they they they're, they are not good pollinators in enclosed areas. So, uh, although they're great pollinators, just not in this situation. Interesting. Um, so, did, did anybody have an idea why that is, Rick? Are they are they just uh, claustrophobic, or what, what? What about their behavior gets messed up by these by these spaces? Uh, I I I do not know. I I really haven't heard any theories for that. Uh, but but it's pretty well known. I mean, if if you put a bumblebee colony. Uh, in a greenhouse, you'll you'll see all the bees foraging just, you know, underneath the, the glass in the top of the greenhouse. You know, oh. just pound, pounding that trying trying to get out. Oh, interesting. And apparently, bumblebees are sufficiently different. Uh, they, I mean, they they're used a lot in greenhouses, aren't they? The bumblebees. That they're used extensively. That that's why there's such a, a, a commercial industry for providing. The, these these commercial bumblebee colonies, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, they have it down uh, pr pretty precise, you know, in terms of the particular crop you're growing in a high tunnel or greenhouse, uh, how many bumblebee colonies you'll need, you know, per uh, thousands of square feet. So they can say, you know, in, in this high tunnel, you may need one or, or you may need two, depending upon the size of the high tunnel and what you're growing. And they're, they're excellent pollinators. In, in greenhouses and high tunnels. You know, it's funny when you read the the specs on on some of those purchased hives, they'll say, well, it will they will pollinate so many thousands of square feet, but they're talking about a square, mm -hmm. not not a tunnel, right? So somehow they don't perceive that the same, right? Yeah, and 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 that's where we have to be careful, you know, extrapolating from how many hives you need per you know, 10,000 feet in a greenhouse to what you need in a mesotunnel because they, they don't have the same flying space. So it, it may, may be a lot more difficult getting from point A to point B in a mesotunnel than it would be in a high tunnel or a greenhouse where they can get up above the, the crop and, and cruise for, for some distance. I know, Dave, you, you and your students have made measurements of bee activity inside the tunnels and um, do you want to comment a little bit more on how you did that and what it told you? Sure. So um, we basically in, in our longer tunnels have been tracking bee activity either from coming from uh, one of these purchased bumblebee colonies or from the wild bees that are coming in from, from the, uh, the environment. And, and some of the treatments that we've used are like an what we call the on off on treatment where the net goes on we take the net off during flowering and then afterward we put the net back on or another one called that we call the open ends treatment where we just open the ends 
keeping the tunnel uh, above the crops, but there is a, at least two openings where bees from the outside world can get into the tunnels. And so it's been a big question about how there, these wild bumblebees and purchased bumblebees are going to visit flowers throughout uh, these, these um, mesotunnel crops. And so what we do is we, we, we've marked plants at different distances from either the, the purchased bumblebee colony or uh, from different distances from the edge, the openings um, for the open ends treatment. And we're just uh, using short uh, bee visitation observations to see how many uh, bees visit flowers in a certain amount of time. And um, the basic findings we found are somewhat surprising. Uh, generally, the, in the larger mesotunnels we've used, the, the purchased bumblebees have fewer bees visiting per uh, time. Um, and then I guess one pattern that would be expected in something like the open ends tunnel is that you would expect there to be more bees towards the, the openings. Uh, but at least for our trial, we didn't really find that uh, pattern or at least, uh, in fact, I think it, it was pretty consistent throughout the whole tunnel. Hmm. Um, this is interesting. I mean, I'm trying to think about bee psychology here and I'm, I'm sure it's a very limited uh, you know, subject, but so, you have your, your your closed up long tunnels and and the 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 bumblebees are, are not terribly energetic about getting to the flowers or their, their the number of businesses but yet you take those same tunnels you open the ends now you don't have purchased bees anymore you have all these do you think that the purchased bees are like compromised in some way are they just lazy uh they've been drinking sugar water inside their their house or what's the story I, yeah, I, I don't think that's the case. Um, I, but I'm, I, you know, I haven't asked them. I think uh, <laughs> one, of, one of the problems may be there's just not enough bees per colony and possibly uh, like you guys were saying, the, the ability to forage down this linear uh, plot uh, may make it a little bit more challenging for them to actually um, cross and, and, and make it to all the flowers. The other added thing that we're, we're trying to study, which we don't quite have answers to, is what happens when the mesotunnel, uh, we're using living mulches in the furrows, and sometimes they can grow quite tall in some of the, the, the weed control experiments. And one of the questions really is, is what happens is if the vegetation is so thick inside of the mesotunnel for bee uh, movement across that, that linear plot. Um, and that, that's a little bit harder to get at uh, kind of with uh, scientific measurements, but um, it's, it's one hypothesis we're thinking about as to why sometimes bees are, are less effective underneath the tunnels. You mean it's just so crowded in there? I think if I understand what you're saying, it's so crowded in there, they can't even see the flowers? Or possibly they can't, um, they can't move um, very quickly or very far without having to um, kind of avoid the, the squash leaves or the cover crop um, foliage. And so it's kind of just a tighter space. I'm not entirely sold on that because when you watch bees, especially bumblebees, they are pretty nimble and seem to move 
right through the vegetation nice and slowly, but um, it, it, could, it could contribute to some of the effects we see. What, what do you guys think about other species of bees? I mean, as, as, in my dim understanding of it, there are other species of bees that, that are pollinators that you could buy. Would they make more sense in this context, you know, in the mesotunnel situation than, than, uh, than bumblebees? Um, at this point, we would have to say we don't know. You know, we, we, we could purchase some of those and, and try them out. You know, they, they, they would have to be able to pollinate in enclosed areas like the bumblebees. Uh, and then we would also need to be efficient pollinators for the flowers of this cucurbit group. Uh, not, not all bees pollinate the same flowers equally. And so, but, you know, it's the type of thing, we, it, it's, it's possible and we could try it, but... Uh, uh, before we guess how effective they would be, we, we would need to see um, some evidence that, that they could, could be effective. Yeah. Is, I, go ahead, uh, Dave. Uh, yeah, and in fact, I think the first year I've been on this project, we, we tried to buy, I believe they were leafcutter bees, um, and they, they come in little um, uh, like straws, like a drinking straw that's uh, I've got a, a, a few individual workers um, and we put them out and they never merged. And so we abandoned that treatment. Uh, but that, that was even somewhat of a, yeah, very experimental because we weren't sure exactly how great of a pollinator they'd be. In fact, heard they're not as good as bumblebees. You're listening to the Current Cucurbit podcast series. Our three-year project is searching for more profitable and less pesticide-dependent ways to grow organic eucurbit crops. Now, back to our interview. I'm kind of curious yeah. about your long tunnels with the open ends. Was it mostly honeybees and bumblebees that you saw flying in from the outside, or were, were there you know, other species that stood out? <laughs> yeah, uh, for the last... Year, it's been mostly bumblebees um, that have found their way in there. We do find a few honeybees. Um, and then there are these interesting bees called squash bees that are uh, native species that are actually specialists to um, collecting pollen and nectar from, from cucurbit plants. Um, and on occasion, we would find a few of those. Um, I will say we had one uh, treatment in one of our weed control plots where we had buckwheat growing in the furrows. And um, we found a lot more uh, smaller native bee species in that treatment, but they weren't necessarily visiting the squash flowers. They were just present visiting the buckwheat flowers mainly. Um, oh. But um, the, the squash bee is kind of the uh, holy grail of squash pollination. And I think, uh, Rick, you had a PhD student that really dove into some of the questions related to the, the squash bee, correct? Yeah, I mean, uh, a, a few years ago, we had a student and we were actually trying to use the squash bees underneath the row covers. Uh, they're not commercially available and you know it's not practical for a commercial grower but we, we 
hand collected them and put them under the row covers and they were extremely effective. The, the interesting thing is squash bees only pollinate squash and pumpkin flowers. You know, out in the field, they don't do the cucumbers, the melons and the watermelons. But uh, just for uh, uh, fun, we put them underneath row covers that only had melon plants in there. We were sort of messing around with the, the squash bees and we found when they didn't have a choice, they were excellent pollinators of uh, melons underneath row covers as well. So uh, not giving them a choice, uh, they, they did quite well. Hmm. You know, I wanted to ask you guys about, um, so, you know, kind of what your perceptions are of like grower attitudes towards purchase bees. I mean, is that is that something that growers are averse to or do, as far as to your knowledge or, um, uh, I guess the larger question is: Are are there are there other downsides to using purchase bees besides just what we've seen? Um, I, I would start by saying yes to both both your questions. Hmm. Okay, so so yeah, there is some adversity. Uh, I, I get feedback, you know, the cost. Uh, you know, the, the bumblebees are expensive. Can we tell them exactly how many square feet? You need per colony. No, we haven't done that that research yet. Um, but at the same time, uh, growers are are very innovative, and they'll take the information that we give them, and and they will use it in in ways, and they'll add to it. And just as as an example, many of our melon growers have sequential plantings of of melons throughout the. Uh, the, the spring and early summer, every two weeks they may have another planting. Well, if you only need bumblebees for two or three weeks uh, and you have sequential plantings, why don't you take the same colony and just move it from sequential planting to sequential planting? You know, we don't do that, but that's something a, a commercial grower might do to help mitigate the cost of, of the bumblebees. And they, they might be able to get two, maybe three uh, plantings out of a single bumblebee colony. So they're getting uh, an economy of scale, but it's a, it's a time scale. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and it fits into their uh, production practices. Mm -hmm. um, for your second question, are, are there other issues that need to be considered with, with commercial uh, bumblebees? And, you know, what one other um, issue I hear about is there, there's the potential for moving uh, pathogens around the country with some of these commercial beehives. And, and the idea is that these pathogens can get into uh, wild bee populations. And, and that, that, that has been uh, a criticism. Uh, I don't know exactly to what extent that risk is, but, but I'm aware of, of, of that, uh, that issue. And so this is not just a matter of honeybees being a gazillion honeybees mo being moved around to pollinate almonds in California or whatever. It's it, it could also potentially occur for bumblebees in these smaller settings. Correct, correct. And we're not talking about necessarily the same pathogens with honeybees as we are bumblebees. And the issue would, would be we, we have a number of uh, bumblebee species in the United States. Some of those are threatened as well. And you know we we certainly don't don't want to put more stress on those populations. I see. Yeah, I I just read an interesting paper that was tracking um, the history of um, 
the use of these commercial bumblebee hives uh, in the US, which they originally came from Europe. And um, one of the big problems was they used to use the, the Western honey, or the Western bumblebee and the Eastern bumblebee. And uh, there is a, a link between an outbreak of uh, Nasema, uh, a fungal pathogen of bumblebees, and uh, the potential over the expansion of use of these commercial hives or, or, or colonies in especially the western part of the United States where they think that this the spread and the escape of some of these bees used in greenhouses may have, uh, have been the demise of, of a number of other native bumblebee species and also caused the decline of the wild western bumblebees as well. Wow. Um, and that led to a bunch of other complicated restrictions on which kinds of bees can be used where. And I believe right now, California, Oregon, and Washington are states that have restrictions on using um, non-native bee species in, in, the, in their growing operations. They, they won't use European honeybees? Sorry, just bumblebees. Oh, we're talking bumblebees here. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, though, Dave, um, and I've heard growers, organic growers, express concern about the fate of purchased bumblebees. Okay, they're left in there for, for in the tunnels for several weeks, um, but then worried about what would happen to them. And I think we've actually seen um, other bees uh, sort of taking over the these boxes of, of bumblebees are, you know, maybe even, I hate to say it, but actually uh, eating the bumblebees. Does that sound possible? Uh, this is late now, this is late in the season, but, you know, some, some growers, you know, concerned that, oh, I should let the bumblebees go, you know, free them rather than let them sit in the tunnel to starve or die. But uh, what's your take on that? Um, well, Go ahead, Rick. Uh, I, I was just going to say uh, a lot of these the smaller commercial bumblebee colonies are shipped without queens, so the, the, there are workers in there, and they're they're intended to provide eight to ten weeks worth of pollination services, consistent pollination services. After that, it, it drops off, and you know the other thing to think about is that uh, unlike honeybees, uh, bumblebee colonies. Uh, bumblebees only make annual colonies. And so uh, they go through a natural cycle of having workers during the summer and fall, and then they begin producing uh, what we call reproductives for next year. And um, so, so the colonies naturally die off anyway, and without the queens, they're gonna die off sooner. So given what you guys have said about the potential risks of spreading, diseases and, and maybe competing with native species uh, plus this annual cycle, what would you recommend to a grower who's, you know, concerned about the, uh, um, what can I say, the, uh, the sort of uh, humanitarian aspects of, of letting the bees die? What, what, what would be, I mean, just to, to put, a, put it bluntly, what would be a, a, a a humane way to um, euthanize the bees um, when they've done their job. 
before they can get out there and, and, and mix with the wild populations. Dave, do you want to take a stab at that? <laughs> well, you know, um, well, anyway, I, I wanted to bring up one more point before I try to answer that question. But uh, mm -hmm. I, I remember I misspoke slightly. In California, you're allowed to use Eastern bumblebees still, but you have to terminate them somehow at the end of the season. Uh -huh. that, is, that is the rule, I think. Um, and, how, and how do they do it? And how they do it, I'm not exactly okay. sure. Okay. Um, how you um, humanely euthanize bumblebees? What would, would like CO2 or something be a way to do it? Just sort of, you know, run a CO2 line into a, a closed uh, box, and that, that would be fairly humane. Or you know, if, if someone had the CO2, yeah, I mean that. Yeah, it wouldn't you know, be something a farmer would have. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you just give them CO2 for, you know, 10 or 20 seconds, you, you stun them. But, you know, if you deplete them of oxygen, you know, you're going to kill them. So mm -hmm. you, you keep running that that slowly yeah. in there. I see. Well, we're probably talking about a fairly grim topic here, but uh, because of people's concerns, just one of those issues that sort of, mm -hmm. you know, to no pun intended, swarms around this uh, use of bees. For a lot of research, scientists they will put bees in the freezer but part of the, part of that reasoning is to be able to preserve them and also euthanize them but um i'm not sure if they go into a torpor before they experience pain oh uh-huh hmm so this is a, I, just one more complication i guess right i mean you you've got another you've got a another live animal in your in your growing system there and and uh, what's the fate of that animal and um i guess people don't worry about that as much when you're talking about wild pollinators they kind of mind their own business and have a home somewhere and um so so is, is there a bottom line here yet would, would you guys say that um, they that reading the tea leaves of what we've seen so far that this doesn't this this uh, supplying of of bumblebee boxes inside closed uh, long length mesotunnels that uh, uh, doesn't seem to make sense to you or would you say that the jury's too it's too early for the jury to decide or what well the one thing that i think that actually came from your group at iowa state that provided a, a kind of a clear context dependence um so because because part of the problem with allowing with opening the nets and allowing the wild bees in is that you allow the cu cucumber beetles and squash bugs in as well and they sometimes later in the season are not necessarily as damaging but they do carry a lot of uh, pathogens that can be very devastating if you live in an area that has um, populations or high prevalence of, of bacterial wilt and i believe you you all had a very nice study that quantified the, the cost benefit of, of um, using this kind of full season exposure with the bee colonies. And yeah. if, you, if your farm is in a place with, with bad bacterial wilt, then it's probably your best option. I believe that was the catch line. Yeah, that, that's pretty close, um, Dave. And, and our, an original study 10 years ago sort of hinted at that. And then we did these 30 foot long plots, which were small, but uh, 
um, we could show that in years where the where the uh, beetles were numerous and the bacterial wilt pressure was high, um, oh, you know, you could make a pretty good um, economic case for having those um, uh, purchased bees inside a tunnel that's sealed all season. But if you go to a year and there are plenty of them where the beetle populations are low or, or the bacterial wilt is not in the beetles, um, then you've got a lot of capital expenditure there and it may not make quite as much difference. So uh, it may make it, you know, this is hard to calculate, but I, I guess the question is how many years out of 10 do you think you're going to have a high population of beetles and high risk of bacteria? Well, that's a bit of crystal ball gazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, do you guys have any, any of their sort of final thoughts about, um, um, you know, we're kind of midstream here in our work. We're not done. We have another year of field work and field observations, but um, any other things you think that um, uh, sort of take home messages for growers at this point uh, with regard to these uh, purchased bees? Well, you know, what one thought I have is, is, is working with, with growers. There's no one size that fits all strategy that, that growers are going to use. You know, we've, we've looked, you know, through, through various grants and projects, we've looked at various uh, uh, ways of using, you know, uh, uh, spun bond row covers versus netting and things like that, when, when to take it off, when to put it back on, what, what to put in there for pollinators. And despite all that data, growers are use, utilizing it in different ways. You know, some just like uh, using the, the row covers for the first three or four weeks until the pollination, then they just take it off. And, and you know, they're not getting the full benefit, but, but they're getting a large benefit from that row cover. And, and then they just deal with the, the wild pollinators and, and, and they go with it like that. And so I, I think we're, we're going to likely see different people utilize it differently based on their, their relative uh, risk aversion levels and, and things like that. And so uh, I guess the best we can do is, is provide people with different options and they know what the advantages and trade-offs are with the different strategies. Yeah, that's a good uh, good insight, Rick. Um, and you know, it's been true in our study. We work pretty closely with growers in New York and Kentucky and Iowa. And um, I think they've influenced us as and, and the way we do things as much as they we've influenced them or maybe more. So uh, we we do have our ears open when they're talking and listening to their experiences and whether they're trying to multi-crop inside the same tunnel or, or various you know iterations uh, using parthenocarpic varieties in there like like cucumbers and. There's a lot of twists and turns that that certainly deserve more more work, and uh, a lot of times it's the grower innovations that are kind of leading the way. Yeah. Well, we uh, really appreciate you guys' time. We've been uh, talking to Dr. Rick Besson and Dr. Dave Gonthier of University of Kentucky uh, Department of Entomology, um, and uh, this is part of the um, uh, current Cucurbit podcast series. So uh, thanks for your time, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Current Cucurbit podcast series. I'm the host, Mark Gleason. Jose Gonzalez is the sound editor. The Current Cucurbit podcast series is funded by a grant from USDA's Organic Research and Extension Initiative. For more information about the three-state project, contact Mark Gleason at mgleason at iastate.edu in Iowa 
Sarah Pethybridge, SJP277 at cornell.edu in New York, or David Gonthier, DJGO227 at g.uky.edu in Kentucky.